Well, good morning. Good morning. Last week, we started by looking at wisdom. And Mike started us off with that. I want to pick that up. Oh, thank you very much. I just want to dig a bit of a foundation for the wisdom of God in our lives today. I'm just going to adjust my tablet because it's got a magnetic thing on it here. And because it's on here, a metal platform, it switches itself up. So the wisdom of God. as Mike touched on last week, isn't found and isn't sourced in universities. You won't go to Cross Keys College, a good college, because my son goes there and some of you go in there and have been there, but you won't find godly wisdom in Cross Keys College. You won't find it in the business boardroom. You won't find it in the religious establishments and you won't find it in the political arena because it's a godly wisdom. Godly wisdom, as the Bible defines it, is, first of all, an insight into the true nature of things. It's basically being able to discern what's really going on here. That's the wisdom of God in a situation. So when there's problems and there's difficulties, Worldly cleverness, worldly wisdom looks at the surface and how can we solve it? But godly wisdom goes straight to the root of what's really going on here? What are the real issues in this thing? And then also godly wisdom is how to get from where I am now to the best possible place to be and then also to choose the best possible way of getting there. We read about it in Ephesians, that God, in all wisdom and understanding, lavished his grace on us. Because God wanted to adopt us as children, and he saw the best way to do it was to send Jesus to die on a cross and to lavish his grace on us. So God had the destination in view, but also the best way to get to the destination. So the wisdom of God chooses the best way and also the best way to get there. And also the wisdom of God is, how do I walk out in the will of God for my life on a day-to-day basis? I read God's word. I listen to sermons. But how do I walk in that and apply it to my life, the mess I'm in, the brokenness of my family, living as a Christian in today's world? How do I apply that today? So that's the wisdom of God. And that's why you won't find it in universities, in colleges, in the business world, in the political establishments, on its own. Because it's a godly wisdom. It's operating in the God way of doing things. It's operating in the life that God has for each one of us. And that's why I love it about the wisdom of God. Because it's not about IQ. It's not about getting letters after your name. It's not about family upbringing and what kind of books you read. But it's the wisdom that comes from God. Have we got the next slide up? The wisdom of God 
there's a story of Elisha and his friends, and one of them is cutting some wood, and the axe head flies off and sinks in the water. What am I going to do? I borrowed that axe head, an axe from a friend, and now I've lost his axe head. So the wisdom of God tells Elisha to get a piece of wood, throw it in the water, and the axe head floats to the surface. You wouldn't read that on Wikipedia. You wouldn't read that on Google or anywhere else. How to get axe heads out of the river, throw in a piece of water and the axe head will float. It doesn't work like that. A blind man comes to Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Spits on the ground, makes some mud and spreads it on the man's eyes and tells him to go and wash the mud off and he's healed. That's the wisdom of God. Jesus hearing from God how to get this blind man from where he is in his blindness to being someone who loves Jesus and he's healed. Jesus, we've run out of wine. Jesus, can you send your disciples to the outdoor, to the spa and get some alcohol or something? But Jesus says, that water there, those water pots, fill it with water and go and pour it out. And as you do that, the water will be turned into wine. That's the wisdom of God. Hearing from God and knowing what to do in a situation. Reading the book of Acts, Paul, to pay his way as a missionary, as an evangelist, he made tents. So doing any manual labor in the Greek world, no air conditioning 2,000 years ago, hot, sweaty, as he's making those tents. So he puts his sweat cloth down like that. And at the end of the day, somebody comes up and says, that dirty, sweaty rag, I'm going to send that to my uncle in Athens. And as soon as it touches that guy's uncle, he gets healed. We see about prayer cloths on the God channel and something like that, and it's something you have to pay $50 for or something nowadays. But what they did back then, it wasn't a nice, fairly clean hanky like this. Don't look too far. You might see a few things. But it was Paul's sweat cloth. And they sent it off to people, and they were healed. Where does it tell them in the Word of God to do that? Which chapter of the Bible does it say to get people healed? Sweaty prayer cloths, stick them in a jiffy bag and say, it doesn't, but it's the wisdom of God. And that's why we need to hear from God. That's why we need to operate in God's wisdom because God's wisdom brings God's solutions and God's kingdom into everyday life. Not based on IQ, not based on intelligence, but it is based on something so vitally important. Can we have a look at the next slide, please? What am I doing? Pouring water back into the jug, dear. I need some of what I'm preaching about this morning. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There's some other scriptures on the left, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Micah, basically saying the same thing. But if we want the wisdom of God, we don't go to university. We don't get it by studying, but the very foundation for having the wisdom of God operating in our life 
is to fear him. If we want understanding, then we need to know the Holy One, Jesus. Because the implication is, and this is why I say it's not found in the political arena, the educational arena, the religious arena. Because the implication is from these verses here, if we don't fear God, if we don't know him, then we're devoid of real wisdom. We're devoid of real understanding and we won't know how to walk out in the will of God in our day-to-day lives. So we need the wisdom of God. Because Isaiah 55 tells us that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are God's thoughts and more exalted than our thoughts and our ways of doing things. Someone who's blind, then they need to go and get an MRI scan. They need to see a surgeon. They need to have this. But Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud. That's the wisdom of God. So we need to operate in that and we need to be able to tap into those thoughts which are by nature so out of our understanding, so beyond our comprehension. And the way to get it and the reason it's accessible to each one of us here this morning is to come to know God, to come and fear Him, to realize He is Creator. We are created. He is holy. And by nature, we are not holy. He is righteous. And we are unrighteous. And Job, we read about in the Bible, he went through some bad times. Children killed by bandits. Lost all of his crops, lost all of his livestock. His body covered in boils and sores and he was racked in pain. So he had some friends come and visit him and they told him, oh, it's because of this or because of that, because you've sinned, because you've gone fearful. And they're giving their penny worth. Trying to suggest to Job why this was happening in his life. And Job just had a sneaking feeling. These guys aren't operating in wisdom. I don't know what is going on, but these friends of mine, they're not operating in the wisdom of God. They're telling me it's because of sin. They're telling me it's because I've opened the door and let fear in, but it's not that. And then one day, Job is confronted by God. And God gives him a nature lesson. You read the last few chapters in Job. And God doesn't answer Job's questions Why has this happened to me? Why am I in this mess? Why has this happened? But Job is just confronted with the greatness and the majesty and the awesomeness and the beauty of God. And we read towards the end of Job in Job chapter 42. I think it's on the screen. This is what Job says. My ears had heard of you. I've been in church every week and I've heard sermons. I've listened to the podcast. I've seen about you. I've heard about you on the God channel. But now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I remember as an 18-year-old when I became a Christian, just a few months after I became a Christian, I was on my own in the house one Saturday morning. My 
dad was out at work. And I've got a ghetto blaster. You remember, yeah, Rich, remember ghetto's blaster? Yeah, put your hand up if you ever had a ghetto blaster. I'd got a ghetto blaster. This one, twin tapes. So it played first tape, side A, side B. You had to turn tapes over in those days. Side A, side B. And then it would automatically kick into tape B, tape two, play side A, side B, and then go back again. So you could have three hours of continuous music. It was wonderful. And I went to the electric shop and I bought myself an extra long extension lead so I could stretch it from the plug in my bedroom and have it out on the landing. So when I was on the, my own in the house, I'd have the ghetto blaster on the landing outside the bathroom, bathroom door open. I could just listen to some music. And this one Saturday morning, I was listening to a worship tape. I was cleaning my teeth. And I just singing a simple song based on Isaiah 6. I see the Lord. I see the Lord. He's high and lifted up. And his train fills the temple. The angels cry holy. The angels cry holy. The angels cry holy is the Lord. That's all it was. And they just kept on singing it. And I kept on cleaning my teeth until halfway through that song... I was just overcome with the awesomeness and the majesty and the greatness of God. I just spat in the sink, put my toothbrush down and just lay on the bathroom floor for I don't know how long, crying, overcome with the majesty of God. Fast forward now X amount of years to a couple of weeks ago. One morning, I'm reading my Bible, and God comes along and kicks me in the pants. And God reminded me of that back then when I was 18. And he said, Phil, it shaped you then, but is it shaping you and influencing you today? Is that experience I had of the majesty of God still influencing me today or is it just something I put down in my journal to remember and oh yeah that was nice I encountered God move on because it's easy to talk about fearing God but maybe it's easy to understand what happens when we don't fear God because when we don't fear God we take him for granted. So we rock up into God's presence, whether it's in church or in our quiet times, any old how. Because he's a good God, he's a happy father, and we can just come to him. And we sin, and we do things wrong, and we think, God will forgive me for that, because it's taking God for granted. We take his blessings for granted and just think they're just going to drop out the sky. And yes, God has got some blessings for everyone. But there are some blessings that he only reserves for those who fear him, who seek his face, who press in to know him. We take his presence for granted. Jesus has promised to be here and he's here. 
And he is. But I'm just not satisfied with knowing that God is here because I've read a promise in the Bible. I want to know his presence. I want to know his presence because people are prophesying, people are being healed, people are being going home saying, wow, that sermon touched my life, that testimony. Oh, if God did that for that person, God can do it for me. Where we read in the Bible in Corinthians, people come in and say, God is really amongst you. Not because they know a promise, but because they've experienced the presence of God. So I'm not saying we've got to become more sober and somber and everything. No. But if we want the wisdom of God, if we want the life of God, then we can't take God for granted. Several years ago, the whistleblower, Julian Assange, don't know how he did it, but he got a load of CIA data and uploaded it onto the internet. So everybody could go and see where there were hidden CIA operatives. They could go and see what was really at Area 51 at Roswell, and they didn't find anything about it because it wasn't on anything there. They could find out all the secrets about the CIA, governments, newspapers, and lots of private information was made available so anyone could go and access it. But God isn't like that. Let's have a look at the next verse. Psalm 25, verse 14. Is it there? Psalm 25, verse 14 says, The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. So when I'm talking about the fear of God, we can think, oh, it's a heavy thing, it's an oppressive thing. But according to Psalm 25, verse 14, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He's got secrets to share. He's got information to give. He's got things he wants to tell people, but he will only tell it to those who are his best friends, to those who are his intimate acquaintances. It literally means God takes into his confidence those who fear him. And hold him in awe. John 15 verse 15. Jesus said, I don't call you servants. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Because everything I've learned from the Father, I've made known for you. Do you think Jesus knows a lot of stuff? Yeah? Jesus knows a fair bit of stuff. And Jesus said, everything I've learned from the Father, I want to make that known to you, my friends. But he will only do that to those who fear him. Right, question time. When he was on earth, why did Jesus teach people in parables? Why did Jesus use stories to teach people? Go on, you can shout out. If you get it wrong, we'll just mock you and pour scorn upon you, so don't worry, but you know. Why did Jesus teach people in parables? Make it easier to understand. Put your hands up if you think that's the right answer. Let's ask the chaser. Mm -mm. No! That's a lot of 
that's what a lot of people think. And you Google it. Why did Jesus teach in parables? And the three American Sunday school lessons will tell you, Jesus taught in stories to make it easy for people to understand. No. It was quite the opposite, actually. Let's have a look at this passage, Mark, ele- Mark 4, 11 to 12. Is it there? Mark 4, 11 to 12. Jesus told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. There's some deep stuff in this verse that I'm not necessarily going to get into this morning. But Jesus is saying, you, my disciples, those who love me, those who cherish me, those who fear me, I'm giving you the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. I'm telling you the way the kingdom of God operates. And I'm going to model it over the next three and a half years for you. So some people, there's going to come to you and I'm just going to lay hands on them and heal them. Other people, I'm going to spit on the ground. Other people, I'm going to touch them on the tongue and shout. And other people, I'm just going to give the command and they'll be healed. I'm going to show you how the kingdom of God operates so that you might be ministers of the kingdom of God, so that you might bring the rule and reign of God wherever you go to you, my disciples. So there's you, the disciples Jesus is talking to, and then there's those on the outside. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling it in stories so that those on the outside will only really understand it if they're serious about it. Because if they're not serious about it, all they hear is a nice story with a moral ending. And it'll be good, and it'll be okay, and it'll probably get six out of ten on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. But if you really want to know the wisdom of God in your life, if you really want to know what it is to walk out in the kingdom of God, you've got to be on the inside circle of those who are disciples of those who love me, of those who fear me. And then when you do, you'll be walking along the road one day and I'll whisper in your ear. A couple of years ago, back in February 2013, I'd been off sick from work for a good couple of months with a bad back, so I can really sympathise with Jill. And my condition was going downhill rapidly. I went to bed one night that I woke up in the morning. I was healed. God broke. I'll tell you about it another time. But basically, I I was healed in the night, undoubtedly, of God. And I was like pumped up, you know, yeah. I go back to work. I'm getting back into the swing of work. And one day, just as I'm going in, God speaks to me. And just reminded me of Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And I'm literally saying to God, I know that. We've got that on bookmarks at home. That's a famous verse. Even non-Christians know that. But God says, trust in me with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding in this situation, Phil. What? And I'll go into work that day. And I'm given a redundancy notice. But a few hours before that, God is telling me, 
trust me in this situation. Don't try and figure it out for yourself. And like Bill was saying earlier, God turns all things round for good. God works in the situation. But without the wisdom of God, without God whispering in my ear that morning, that news would have brought devastation to me and my family facing redundancy. But God had preempted me and said, trust in me in this situation. So we need to have the whisper of God in our ear. We need to have God prompting us and telling us what he wants us to do. Let's quickly run through a few practical points. The hallmarks of a God-fearing person. James 1 verse 5, it's on the, or should be on the screen. If any of you lack wisdom, put your hand up if you lack wisdom. Yeah. If any of you, so I'm looking at every single person, so every single person knows it's for them. If any of you lacks wisdom, what should you do? Ask the giving God who gives generously without finding faults and it will be given to you. So Mike, he needs wisdom what to do with this building. So Mike comes to God and says, God, give me wisdom. What should I do as regard? Oh, God says, oh, Mike, you numbskull. If you'd have asked me a couple of months ago, I'd have told you, but now you made your bed, you sleep. God doesn't do that. He gives generously without finding fault. Now, God might be thinking at the back of his mind, only you'd have asked me a few months ago, but God will say there's wisdom available today. No matter where you are now, even if it's because of the mistakes and the mess and the wrong decisions of the past, I'm going to give generously to you because you're coming to me and asking me. And I'm not going to find fault. I'm not going to be there rubbing your nose in the dirt saying, told you so, glad you find it, find time to come and ask me at last. God's not going to be like that. God's going to say, come and ask me. So the God-fearing person is a God-dependent person who knows God walking through this life, living this life according to your word, your principles, your kingdom. I can't do it. So will you give me wisdom? God, will you whisper in my ear? And sometimes I pray, God, I'm so thick. I'm so slow at times. Will you shout in my ear if need be? And God does sometimes, and sometimes we still don't get it. But God, we come to you, and we ask for wisdom. Second one, this was the spoilers right at the beginning of the meeting. Consistently meditate and devour his word. We got that one there? Again, two contrasts. The worldly person, the person who's outside of that circle of Jesus' disciples, operating however they want, doing what they want, when they want, how they want. But God's person, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What did David mean when he said on his law, he meditates day and night? He literally meant... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Because that's all he had back then. So there's David lying in bed at night thinking, Oh, Leviticus chapter 3. What a corker that was. That's the way he was because it was God's word. And we're there thinking, Oh, glad you feel about like that, David. Not felt that way about Leviticus myself, but 
Yeah, each one to his own. But we've got more than that. We've got the Gospels that tell us about Jesus. We've got the letters that tell us who we are in Christ Jesus. We've got the book of Revelation that tells us that Jesus is coming back again. And we win. We know it in advance. Can I encourage you? As you get this word into your life, as you do what David says in this psalm, you meditate on it day and night, night and day, day and night. Instead of the worries keeping you awake at night, I'm praying that the word of God will keep us awake at night, that the promises of God will keep us awake at night, that God will wake us up with godly wisdom solutions to problems in our lives at 2 o'clock in the morning because we're just, yeah, I read it in the Word two weeks ago, and then that preacher mentioned it there. That's what I've got to do. That's how I need to fix that. Because God's speaking to us through His Word. And as we devour His Word, as we meditate on His Word, it gets into us. I can talk about Lynn this morning because she's out doing kids' work, so I can say what I like. But I'm not going to say bad things. Lynn's a type of person. She's been a Christian since she was about five or eight years old. You ask Lynn, though, where does it say this in the Bible? And she doesn't know the answer. She won't know chapter and verse, but because she's had the word of God going into us for so long, she knows the principles. She knows God's word in her heart because it's just stored away there. She won't be able to quote it you, but it'll just come out as she gives advice, as she just talks. And that's the way David's saying, you don't have to know what verse it is. You don't need to know who said it and where it's from. It's helpful and you can just look it up on your phone nowadays. But get God's word into so it starts to shape you and influence your decision making. Let's have a look at the next one. Last one. Romans 12 verse 2. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Which brings us back to the beginning. As Christians, we want to walk in the ways of God. The will of God. His good, his pleasing, his perfect will. We want to know God's way of raising our kids. God's way of supporting our children who are now hundreds of miles away at university. God's way of doing church. God's way of seeing healing brought to broken lives, families and communities. So we need to operate in God's good, pleasing and perfect will. And how do we do that? We do it by renewing our minds. Not by letting the world around us put the squeeze on us and shape us so that we become a culturally acceptable church, a church that people can come into. Yes, we want people to come in and feel at home. We want people to come in and, wow, what a welcome, what a loving people. But we're operating in a different way. We're operating according to God's thoughts, God's methods, God's motives, and God's heart, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And as we renew our mind... As we get God's word into our heart, as we meditate on it day and night, as we're going to God daily and saying, God, I'm busted, I'm broken, I'm no good, but you're a generous, giving God who doesn't find fault. Give me your wisdom for this situation. Our minds will start to be renewed. 
And Paul says when that happens, it will transform us. That word transform there is a Greek word, metamorphosis. Put your hands up if you ever did anything related to biology. I thought Mike's hand wasn't going to go up there. I was thinking, oh, no, and he was a nurse. Metamorphosis, that's what happens to what animal? Butterflies. What else? Tadpoles. Can you imagine a couple of caterpillars? They go into a cocoon and they come out as butterflies. Can you imagine two caterpillars talking and saying, you know, Bob, somebody's told me that one day we're going to be able to fly. Oh, you've been down to the tiny rebel again, ain't you, mate? You've had too much. Had too much of that stay puff stuff, you know. You're not going to... You can, fl- yeah. You're not going to fly, but that caterpillar, he knows he's going to fly, and he looks at a butterfly and maybe, dr- oh, if only, if only that could be me. But the change seems so great, so dynamic, so all-encompassing that that little tiny caterpillar could never imagine that he'll move from going along like that to flying. Some of these butterflies fly from Africa to Britain. Why would you want to fly from Africa to Britain the other way around? I can understand, but they can fly, they can do stuff a caterpillar could only ever dream of. But that's the same word Paul uses there for the transformation God's word, renewing our mind, will bring to our lives. So at the moment, you might see yourself as someone busted up, Someone who's financially broke, family dysfunctional. You know, put whatever situation you can name there. And we come to God and we say, God, I need your wisdom. And the first step to knowing that is to realize that He is God, He is majestic, He's the Creator, and because He's the Creator, He's got the answer to every problem because he made us. He knows what we're made of and he knows how to solve it. And once we get that relationship put right, we're created. He's the majestic creator. Then we can be confident in coming to him and saying, God, I need your help right now. I know I've not listened to you time and time again, but I really appreciate if you could tell me what to do. And he gives generously without finding fault. And then we get into his word. And we meditate on it. And we start to think about it. And the word of God starts to shape our thinking. And then there's a transformation comes about. And I'm not there yet. But I thank God I'm a bit further along the journey than I was when I was an 18-year-old nightclubbing teenager. I'm a bit further along now, so one day I'm going into work and God prepares me for the redundancy notice. God showed me how to get a new laptop computer a couple of weeks ago, not by shoplifting, but by legitimacy. But God starts whispering things into our ears. I'm going to hand over to Mike in a minute, and I'm going to ask Mike if he can just pray over us, that we will be people who know the wisdom of God operating in our lives. That will be people. Maybe you see yourself as that caterpillar, limited this morning. But God wants to bring transformation to you.
so you operate according to his kingdom. And I can promise you, according to the word of God, if you do that, if you fear him, he will confide in you. And the transformation it brings about in your life, weeks, months, years down the line, you'll look back and say, yeah, I started renewing my mind and God has brought that transformation to my life.